Hi, Margot Kingston here for No Fibs, and I'm sitting in the former Kempsey Police Station after the launch of Rob Oakshott's campaign for Cowper. And um, hi, Rob. Hi, Margot. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so I'd just like you to introduce yourself to readers in the sense of give us some, a snapshot of your very long history as a representative of this region. Oh, crikeys. Um goes back to the early 1990s uh, where I came to Port Macquarie to work for the then brand new Federal National Party member Mark Vale. I remember left, him? Yeah, remember him. He, I left, so I left uni in the recession we had to have, picked up the job, um, jumped in my red and white combi van and drove up the coast to Port Macquarie and because he'd made an election promise to set up a one-man office in Port Macquarie. He was Taree based an hour down the road um, and basically that was my apprenticeship was learning the ropes um, of a growing regional community and trying to manage the politics largely um, by myself. A couple of years later the state uh, member for Port Macquarie resigned at very short notice, Wendy Machen, who Linda is her. now member yeah. her. Uh, and, you know, without being dishonourable to the National Party, I don't think they were, they were organised for a sort of snap by-election. Uh, I was sitting in a room of one of the party meetings and a lovely old lady, Dorothy Hellowell um, from Lauriton, um, when the question came up as to, well, what are we going to do? Who are we going to appoint, uh, get to run? Um, I still remember her pointing across the room to the young bloke sitting in the corner, myself, saying, what about him? And that was the start of the political journey. Um, so I was made chairman of the branch uh, before I was a member um, and then um, stood for pre-selection, was successful at that pre-selection, then 12 years as a state member. Um, then Mark Vale himself retired, causing a by-election and chose to take that next step in 2008 to run federally and was in federal parliament for five years. And then had a break and now coming back. So what you've left out is that you went into state parliament as a national and you resigned from the National Party yep. to become an independent. Could you tell us why you made that decision? Uh, I think I learned whilst I was on the job that it was extremely difficult for anyone to wear two jerseys at one time and you've ultimately got to make a choice. And everyone in politics has to make that choice. By that I mean um, there is a very different jersey that is the community jersey as compared to the political party jersey. You're either you know, playing that game of climbing the ladder to become a minister to, you know, do all that work and choose that path, and that's the political party path, or you're really trying to work at a community level and advocate for those without power and the most marginalised um, and really you know, disregarding the rest. I really enjoyed the latter, like doing all that community-based work. I think that's what was my strength, and I was shocking at that political party stuff. And it did come to a point where you know, you're making decisions in Parliament one way or the other, and you either do have to give up um, your community to climb the ladder um, and I wasn't willing to do it. So I think it was in both the p political party's best interest, the National Party's best interest and mine um, if we shook hands and parted ways. And I, they, I hope, would agree that I was a square peg in a round hole yeah. um, even though I was climbing internally very quickly, was in shadow cabinet and was playing all those games but I just you know, was not comfortable in that 
party role and it was coming to a head where you know, things like there was a drug summit at the end of the 1990s and I said the injecting room in Sydney was a good thing yeah. um, and you know I was a complete odds of the position of my party I was into you know when the um, the referendum or the constitutional question about the rep republic was thrown around I was advocating for an Australian head of state when the party you know the National Party was the only one at the ballot um, handing out the no ticket. And so we were butting heads um, and I think it was good for everyone that we parted and went our own ways. Um, what interests me a lot is this is, um, I know you're in line and now you've moved to Cowper mm. for a redistribution, but this is extremely conservative area, lots of self-funded retirees and has always been National Party. So you have economically conservative, socially progressive views. So why have you been so popular so that you can be elected an independent even though you're social, socially progressive? Um, because I think it is an assumption about uh, that it is an extremely conservative area. Um, and probably the best way to answer that question is to give you a wrap um, and acknowledge there is a lot of disruption in the media right now and you are the first journalist to come and embed themselves and follow me in 20 years. Okay. So um, I, that is acknowledged and I thank you for that because I hope it does dispel um, some of that myth that this is an arch-conservative area. Mm. Yes, it's an elderly area, but you were with me yesterday when mm. we met Rita. Yeah. Um, yeah. You would not... Well, even though in her past she organised in England to move Labor wards to Conservative wards, mm. she was a fantastic individual who you would never say reflects an arch-conservative area. Um, and I think that's the story waiting to be told about our area. And in the South, you know, when in the old line days, I think that was my ticket to success, is that if you respect people of all ages... And don't assume just because they're old, they're conservative. It unlocks an energy all of its yeah. own. And that's really what I'm feeling and hoping will happen at the ballot box uh, for the seat of Cowper. So from you know, the Coffs Harbour, Nambucca area, which has had 100 years of National Party, yeah. um, I think the opportunity that is emerging is not about me so much. It's about the energy that can come from the vibe mm. without being cliched yeah. as, as to not being assumed to be an arch conservative area and that people can be whoever they want to be and that's the ticket to success for me right. but also the ticket to success for the region however in the 2010 election you found yourself in a position of um, having power as having the balance of power and you had to make the di very difficult decision about whether to support tony abbott or julia gillard and from what I've read, your choice of Julia Gillard did not go down wonderfully well in your electorate. So could you just take us through that mm. period and, and where you were at and why you did what you did? Uh, I, well, to answer the last bit first, I did what I did for all the things that have come since, both locally and nationally. A couple of local examples. We now have two universities in Port Macquarie that yeah. we wouldn't have had before. Yeah. Um, we've had hospital expansions here in Kempsey and in yeah. Port Macquarie. Um, and also, not just parochial to the electorate at the time, there were things like a 110, uh, sorry, a $1.1 billion 
regional and rural hospital program for yeah. over 100 regional and rural hospitals, which hasn't received mm. the credit it deserves, but that yeah. doesn't matter. You know, there were, so those results were important. And then, you know, some of the programs like a Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse, you know, we've now gone through that process. It was controversial at the time. It wouldn't have happened if it was under the Conservatives. Uh, and I think everyone can now see the results and the significance of why that happened. Um, so I went through an independent thought process for those that go to the ballot box and vote for an independent. That is exactly what I did in a very open way. Mm. And yes, you know, there was criticism all the way along that I was either being disloyal to my National Party past or that I spoke too long when I um, actually described the whole process so it was transparent. Exactly. Um, you know, so you're going to draw criticism at that level, but I'm really comfortable in my skin that over time um, that that decision made has proven itself up. I was very lucky, I think, that uh, ironically Tony Abbott did become Prime Minister <laughs> because that gave people a chance to look at the yeah. other alternative. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think history is yeah. starting to tell um, the story about... The relative which, achievements of both governments. Yeah, and who, yeah. who stands the test of time and who yeah. doesn't, as both individual Prime Ministers but also as governments and yeah. who, were, who was doing the job and who was um, just saying they were. So um, one of your greatest achievements, in my opinion, is um, forging agreement between the regional independents, the Greens and Labor to put a price on carbon, Thank which you. is now being torn down. How, how do you feel in retrospect about that, given that you know it, it, it was torn down in 2013 yeah. and, and the coalition is still arguing about what to do in 2019? Yeah, there's a lot of reflections. Um, I have a folder at home and it's called the secret black folder which uh, my oldest daughter's 14, uh, I think she was six at the time uh, and it was considered a cabinet document so um, I couldn't, you know, I didn't even show them, um, it was called in our house the secret black folder. Um, we watched the success of that secret black folder and the death of that secret black folder and in a way when we were, you know, when I reflect that's one of the big reasons why I've come back because there is unfinished business on that secret black folder. Um, uh, I think we did world leading work, yeah. you know, with Greg Combo and Julie Gillard and Bob Brown and Christine Milne and Tony Windsor all managing to sit around the table together and work through the detail. Yes, there were some failures and, you know, some disagreements over things like biomass which still bubble up. Um, but ultimately, there were other countries in the world who were looking at that work and copying that work. And so for all those arguments that Australia doesn't matter, we mattered. Mm. We were world leading and we were driving the agenda. Um, yet, in reflection, we lost control of the politics, or particularly the government lost control yeah. of the politics. Yeah. They allowed it to become this you know, mythical carbon tax uh, and then they allowed it to become about cost of living and mm. you know all the hip pocket stuff that Tony Abbott was very successful to thanks. Was very successful to position it in the short term, uh, rip down the whole exercise, and as you say, now you know the alternative policy is a non-existent one. Mm.
So that work's still waiting to be done. Yeah. Um, I'm still of the school of framing a carbon market is both the most economically and the most environmentally sensible approach. The economically actually, conservative approach. I was going to mention that word. The free market. It is actually the conservative <laughs> exactly. approach. It's what the you know it's what the conservative governments around the world when they're in this space mm. actually do. Um, yet we've got protectionist, liberal, socialist policies. And they're the mm. ones who, any time you turn on Sky TV, are the ones yeah. slagging um, socialism. Yet, um, subsidising coal mines as yeah. an energy policy, well, that's protectionism and socialism. Exactly. So, could you just take me through why you decided to retire in 2013? I just assumed it was because you were, you were tired and maybe burnt yeah. out. Yeah, I was a bit. Um, I was nearly not going to stand in 2010. I was a bit exhausted, um, okay. but I chose to stand and then... Um, things sort of turbocharged with the tight yeah. result. Um, so um, in 2013, um, you know, I had four very young kids at that stage um, and was exhausted. Like, and that really, that was a pretty difficult period to just keep the whole show on its feet for mm-hmm. three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was exhausting. And it was also just wanting time out after 20 years on yeah. the inside, yeah. you know, the cliched sabbatical. Um, and it gave me time to refresh, um, to reflect from the outside, and then to recharge on what are the real key issues that I want to see happen in my lifetime. And then also personally to accept, it's okay to do this, you know, like you don't have to deny being a politician that, you know, I reckon I'm pretty good at it, yeah. and I can bring people together to build better places, yeah. accept that, and get on with it. Yeah. So you've since started a, a medical degree. I understand yeah. your dad was a, a professor of medicine. Yeah. Um, but for some reason in 2016, you decided to run a three-week pop-up campaign <laughs> at the last minute. Like, what, what, what was that all about? It was probably that it's still not out of my blood. Um, yeah. It was a definitely a minute to midnight decision to put in the nomination form. I had it, I sat on it, and I think it was two minutes before nominations closed, I submitted it. Um, and then we worked it out from there. Like there was no structure. Like it was mm. literally a kitchen yeah. um, campaign with uni students yeah. and um, a hell of a lot of fun. And we nearly pulled it off. But we, it was, on reflection, it was almost a social experiment of, yeah. can you run a campaign without doing any infrastructure work, yeah. you know. It was nearly no people in the polling booths yeah. to see whether that would work. Um, what I learned through that is the biggest critics of that are your own supporters because yeah. they want to mm. um, support and get involved and mm. feel denied if you don't do that. Um, to lose them by, I think, 3,000 votes yeah, stung well, a lot. Well, it was 55-45, and that's amazing from a standing start three weeks out. Yeah. So what have you done this time? Did Certainly announced earlier and dug deeper as far as an infrastructure. And and it's not only about the lessons learned from the loss in 2016, it's also some lessons from the victories previously, but also particularly that 2020, 2010 experience of a tight parliament. Um, that one in particular where there's this great groundswell of support, um, but the culture was you get them elected and then everyone goes back to whatever they were doing. Yeah. Then, you know all the noise started and I was trying to 
fall back on my community network that it had largely dissipated. People had moved on because mm. I was elected mm. and they thought, that's your job now. Mm. Um, this time around, both based on the loss last time and that result, we've, we've dug deep into the community network and it's not just about building a network into the election. It's a very clear net message to everyone. This is a, this is a network that sticks after the election um, because I want to have a policy network and it's picking up a bit also on, I think, some of what Indie Votes and, you know, a few other independent yeah, Kathy campaigns really works that kitchen cabinet she sure exercise does, yeah. hard. And, and I think on my own... Constantly consulting and... I think that's fantastic. And on my own reflections, that's not what I've done in the past here and really trying to build that here to, to make sure that grounded message stays throughout a whole term, not just for an election campaign. Okay, so just to finish off, um, on climate change, you said there's unfinished business. Sorry about us getting bitten by mozzies. <laughs> that's all right. Um, <laughs> We're both scratching it. <laughs> that's fancy. Um, give us your... Um, I know you did a quite a, a detailed statement mm-hmm. in Gladstone uh, last week about what your climate change policies would be. Can you give us sort of a pen portrait of, if you're elected... <coughs> how you will treat climate change in the next parliament? It's a priority issue. There's two There's two national issues that really burn that haven't been addressed so far. Um, uh, the Uluru Statement, uh, Treaty, uh, Constitutional Recognition, whatever you want to call it, um, is certainly one that I can't walk away from politics and, until we get more than bipartisan in principle support that does nothing. Mm. You know, I find that a really frustrating mm. dead end at the moment. And so by coming back, really keen to progress that and have a partnership between First Australians and the National Parliament. The other is climate change. Um, I don't like to lose. Um, and that secret black folder matters in my house. Um, and I want my kids to see that politics can deliver things of significance um, that make a difference not just nationally but internationally. Um, So the statement made in Gladstone was that it's a priority issue. Personally, I still think framing a carbon market, but if, you know, governments of the day want to go down different paths, it's basically making sure that we transition um, and transition well um, to... And in an industry policy sense, put our time and energy into um, individuals, communities and jobs that are um, in growth areas um, and shaped around renewables, but even that word becomes a bit tainted over time. It's basically the growth industry of how energy is provided and um, transitioning away from um, coal and coal equivalents. Um, it also means, you know, I don't think this is a battle between the environment and energy either. I think we've got this really old national electricity market with, you know, big coal-fired fired and generators and all these old rules and regs that shape it, that state budgets, about 10% of the state budgets are all shaped around this energy market. And that's actually where the um, power prices have gone up because this old structure is not talking to um, you know, the, the modern opportunity. And so I think 
this is a battle between the state and people. It's not a battle between the economy and the environment. Mm. And so disruption at the ballot box on this topic is desperately needed because both major parties are wedded to this old model. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, you just need to see where the Martin Ferguson's of the world, the Chris Harchers of the world, all these people who are the ministers for energy past have ended up. Yeah. It's in, you know, private Matt industry. You, know, you name them all, yeah. Mm. Um, this is the space that both major parties live in, so it needs the disruption at the ballot box right now. And the things that we can do, distributed networks, microgrids, they're happening around the world now. If we can just change the rules of the market, they're in play. Um, battery technology and all the Elon Musk South Australia stuff, the battery technology um, is coming online and coming online fast. That can be something for every household to change the game. Smart metering both on the, on the meters, oh, oh, sorry, on the grid, but in the home as well. That combination, you can basically take out energy prices from the household. You know, if we want to be serious about cost of living and we also can deliver a better product. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, so we, this is an old network that's been built by the state that is under the rules and regs of the state to make money for the state's budget versus modern technologies, modern ways of and creative ways of doing your renewables where your home becomes a mini generator. Um, you can buy and sell to the, to the market if the rules and regs are right and people's cost of living goes right down. It can be done, it's been done around the world now and we're just not paying attention or um, the two major parties don't want to move. It's time they did. Exactly. Well, thank you very much and um, good luck, Rob. Thank yeah. you for talking with me. Thanks, Margaret. Pleasure.